Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 34. And he says, what more shall I say? For the time failed me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped up the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of aliens. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. All right, of that list there, we're going to, I was going to do the whole thing, but then uh, I'll blame it on Kurt. Kurt said, no, really, Gideon's one of my favorites. I was like, all right, fine. I won't rush through it. We'll break it down, and we're going to start with Gideon and just keep working through these character studies. I think Gideon was one of those kids who always got picked last. I remember going out into the yard to play sports with kids in the neighborhood or recess, and you pick up teams. Most of you awesome jocks in here don't know much about this, but many times I was the end of the picking process. Someone rolled their eyes and got stuck with me on their team, and that's how Gideon feels as we go to Judges chapter 6 to look at the life of Gideon and we'll start with the context what's going on in the history of Israel before we hone in on him personally so what's going on in Israel Judges chapter 6 verse 1 the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord <clears throat> so this is the Jewish sin cycle the children of Israel do evil God sends punishment through the form of some warring foreign tribe coming in and smashing them all up, and then they cry out, and then God sends a judge to help restore order. So that's what's going on here. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord delivered them in the hand of Midian for seven years. The hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. <coughs> because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up also. The Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents. Coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number. They would enter the land and destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So the Lord hears them. And verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down at the Terath bin tree, which was in Orpha, which belonged to Joash, the Abizadite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, My Lord, if the Lord's with us, 
Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So Gideon, Gideon's name means hewer or one who cuts down. So it's a good name for a farmer as he is out there doing some Farming duties, most of the nation of Israel at this time are farmers, and the various tribes were given their parcels of land, and the individual families of the tribes were portioned off theirs to own and work, and uh, most everyone's farmers, and we, you're introduced to Gideon doing farming chores, trying to harvest some wheat, surprising that there is any wheat for him to harvest, as we saw in verse number four, that the, they, the Midianites, they encamped and they destroyed all the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and there was no sustenance in Israel. So um, we note that Gideon, with his little bit of wheat, is threshing his wheat in a wine press. Now, wine press are designed for crushing grapes, not threshing wheat. And the wine press is a sunken pit with large vats where the grapes are collected and the juices pressed and squeezed uh, from them and then channeled into larger containers. Weed threshing, on the other hand, is a process of loosening the edible part of the grain from the straw to which it's attached. Weed is usually threshed in open spaces, typically on a hilltop, so the breeze can blow the chaff away, the unwanted straw bits. Wheat is not normally threshed in a sunken place like a wine press where there's way less breeze action. So, wise Gideon, an experienced farmer, threshing weed in a wine press. Well... Probably because threshing wheat in the open would have attracted the unwanted attention of the Midianite invaders. The wine press is a sunken place, thus it's harder to see him in there. So he's trying to do his work, but he's trying to stay hidden. And this is making his work very inefficient. Of course he knows this, but he's scared of doing the work out in the open because he doesn't want to attract the attention and get robbed or worse. He knows the Midianites are stronger than him. He knows he's weak. He's just trying to survive. And it's no fun just trying to survive. No fun living in fear. But this is where the enemy likes us to be because he can thrive and terrorize us while we live broke and scared. But this is not God's plan for Gideon. Into the scene appears the angel of the Lord, verse number 12. The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord's with you, you mighty man of valor. The Hebrew word there, halil, means strong, mighty, valiant, warrior. There are two statements made by the angel describing Gideon. Neither one is Gideon feeling. First of all, the Lord is with me? Really? Where exactly is he? He says that. The Lord's with us. Where's all the miracles? Why is all this happening to us? And second statement he disagrees with, mighty man of valor, me? I am the weakest my family is the weakest of the tribe of Manasseh, and of my family, I'm the weakest of my whole family. How do I know? Because every time we went out in the yard to play ball, and we pick teams, I always get picked last. I'm no mighty warrior. So who's telling the truth? 
The Lord or Gideon? So we dare not say the Lord's wrong. Obviously, the Lord's right. But Gideon is being realistic about the situation. He's not a warrior. He's a scared farmer. So why is the Lord calling him valiant warrior? Probably it has to do with the Lord knowing what he's going to do, what he's going to make Gideon into. Gideon is focusing on who he is by himself. The Lord is seeing who Gideon is going to become by faith. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, from weakness made strong. Now that's something I think may resonate with many people here today. The need to move from weak to strong. Nobody in here is a finished product. You do not know as of yet what you could be or do. You do not know as of yet what the Lord has in store for you. And yet many people will slap a label on themselves or maybe someone else slaps a label on you and you let it stick. Gideon's label, scared farmer, but God is going to turn him into a mighty man of valor. What label have you stuck on yourself this morning? Too old? Too young? Too dumb? Too poor? Too dysfunctional? Too sick? Addicted? Oh, my body's too broken down. If you listen carefully today, you're going to realize the Holy Spirit wants to peel those labels off and listen to what He wants to make you to be. All right, well, let's summarize the story of Gideon. Verse 16. The Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. <clears throat> now, this is very important. What do you observe? The angel of the Lord says, I will be with you. So, that made my ears perk up, and I'm thinking this could be another pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We learned about this before. The term angel of the Lord can simply be an angelic messenger from God, but there are times when it seems like angel of the Lord is actually a manifestation of God himself to somebody. So verse 12, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him, Gideon replied, if the Lord's with me, where, where, where has he been? And then verse 14, look what it says. The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And verse 16, the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you'll defeat the Midianites as one person. So instead of the angel of the Lord saying, God is sending you, God will be with you, he declares, I'm sending you, and I will be with you. Now notice Gideon's response in verse 17. He said, if ye, now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. It is you who talk with me. What does that imply? Gideon perceives that who he's talking to is more than just some guy. And then Gideon asked him for a sign. Interesting. Who else has Gideon heard of who gives signs? Like he said in verse 13, if the Lord's with us, where are the Lord's miracles? This is a very Jewish thing, isn't it? How many times have we seen this before? Moses signed the burning bush. And then God says, use your rod as a sign. And here's all the plagues. This is a sign. And all through the wilderness windings, wandering, sign after sign after sign. And then Jesus, when he came, he did signs and wonders. 
and miracle after miracle after miracle. The Jews always looked for the signs, and Paul even stated that the Jews seek a sign, he says, and the Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, the stumbling block, and to the Greeks, the Gentiles' foolishness. And ain't that the truth? Some people want signs. Other people want, like the Greeks, explanations and rationale. But Paul says we stick with the facts of the gospel, which is interesting because Christ crucified is both. Right? It is a sign a reoccurring sign all throughout the Old Testament, and it is a very deep, long, elaborate rationale behind why Christ was crucified. And Mr. Neville is going to talk about that today a little bit. We could have a long discussion about all the history of humanity and the reasons for the sacrifice of the Messiah, or you can boil it down to a very simple, palatable message that a five-year-old can comprehend. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Christ crucified is both the sign and wisdom, but it is not the sign or the wisdom that the Jews and the Greeks were looking for because they are lacking faith. Gideon is a guy who asks for lots of signs in this story, but his request is not a lack of faith. It's not seen as that. Actually, it seems to me that Gideon is quick to perceive that this could very well be the Lord. He said, verse 17, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that I know it is you whose talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. He said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat, leavened bread, ephod of flour, the meat he put in a basket, and he brought in a pot, and he brought it out to him under the tree and presented it the, to him. Observe that this offering of food is given in a time of scarcity. People barely have anything they can scrape together to eat, and yet Gideon brings an offering that is a sacrifice for him to give. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Often when people are asking God to prove himself to them, what they ask for is for God to give them something. God, do this for me, and then I will trust you. Is that really a sincere request? God, if you're real, send me some money. If you're real, provide this for me. I once talked to this very heartbroken fella. His wife had passed away, and he said, if God is real... And why won't he bring my wife back? He can prove his power to me by raising my wife up from the dead. Said he did that in scriptures. Why won't he do it for me? And he wouldn't listen to any other reasoning that was the sign he required in order to put his faith in Jesus. But that's not what faith is now, is it? Because faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the knowledge of things not seen. And I tried to tell him that God would give him eternal life and the hope of the resurrection from the dead, but that wasn't what he wanted. Listen to me now. God has great things that he will give you, but he's not a genie that grants wishes. The point of faith is to trust the creator that he knows what's best. And asking God to prove himself to you by giving you what you want is manipulation. 
And God's not interested in entering into a dysfunctional, manipulative relationship with you. That is Satan's gain, not God's. Remember Satan's tempting offer that he made to Jesus? I'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you just worship me. Satan's all too happy to manipulate you and offer you stuff that you want with strings attached, but God doesn't offer that. He says, believe in me, trust me, follow me. Gideon gives an offering to God, and then God gives him a sign. What was the sign? Well, it says here, brings it out. Verse 20, the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on the rock, pour out the broth, and he did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Ooh, there's a sign. So, why would he do that? Lights it on fire, which probably for us seemed like a bit of a waste, right? These are hungry people. They don't have a lot of food to eat, and then they give you some food, and then you just light it on fire. Why would he do that? Well, that's because he's showing Gideon that he is God. He, he, you have to consider Gideon's heritage for a moment. You have to think about what we know and what is taught in the laws of Moses. The Hebrew word for burnt offering actually literally means to ascend, literally to go up in smoke. The smoke from the sacrifice ascends to God, Leviticus 1.9 says, as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Technically, any offering burned over an altar is a burnt offering, but in the more specific terms, a burnt offering was the complete destruction of the animal in an effort to renew the relationship between holy God and sinful man. With the development of the law, God gave the Israelites specific instructions as to what types of burnt offerings they, and what they symbolized. All the temple sacrifices were consumed on the altar, burnt up, and the smoke rises to heaven. A person could give a burnt offering at any time. It was a sacrifice of general atonement and acknowledgement of the sin nature and the request of a renewed relationship with God. That's what it meant. If the angel of the Lord had eaten the offering. That would have been a very human thing to do. But God receives the offering by consuming it with fire. And this sign means that God is renewing his relationship with Gideon. Because that's what the burnt offerings meant. And this is the first step from going from weakness to strength. A sacrifice is made that restores the relationship between the frail dying person and the almighty eternal God. And that's what Gideon's sacrifice was. Now, what was exactly? What specifically was he offering there? It says, what do you say? A young goat. Is that familiar? A goat? Do we use goats for sacrifices? When we talk about the, uh, the sacrifices in the Passover in Exodus, we always say uh, a sheep, right? A lamb. But let's read closer. Exodus chapter 12 says, now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, speak to the congregation of Israel, saying one-tenth of the month, they shall each take a lamb to themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, right? So that is consistent with the sign that we see in Exodus. Numbers chapter 7, read that entire chapter 
It records the people bringing offerings to the Lord and what they were to bring. And over and over again, it repeats that a male goat is offered as a sin offering. A male goat for the sin offering. Now, what is our sin offering? What is the sacrifice that restores relationship between us and Almighty God, eternal God? It is, of course, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Once again, quoting Paul, we preach Christ crucified. Now, see, if I was a prosperity gospel preacher, if I was a grifter out to get your money, I would have said, you bring a sacrifice to God and he will bless you and the sacrifice ought to be money that you give to moi. But the sacrifice for our sins, God already provided it. It's Jesus. When you read the Old Testament, you got to pay attention to these details in the stories and look for the patterns and the meanings of the actions. The goat is given here. It's an atonement sacrifice. And the scripture there is pointing us to Jesus, the atonement for our sins. Next thing God tells Gideon to do after he does this sacrifice, <clears throat> verse 25. Now it came to pass the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and take and the second bull of the seventh year old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. That's kind of fun, right? Like he takes his dad's idol, chops it up, and uses his firewood to make a sacrifice to God. So Gideon took 10 men from among the servants and did as the Lord said to him to do. But because he's fearful of his father's household and the men of the city, too much to do it in the day, so he did it by night. He's kind of scared to do this, but he does it anyways in the, just the cover of night. And in doing so, Gideon takes the second step towards becoming a mighty man of valor. Step one is receive Jesus the sacrifice for your sins. And when your sins are atoned for, it restores your relationship with God. And step two, tear down the false gods. The worship of other gods was a violation of God's commandments. In other words, for us, we have to get rid of anything we are doing that's violating the commandments of God. Anything that we're doing is disobedience, the sinful actions in our life, we need to get rid of them. You confess your sins, Jesus forgives you of your sins, and now you need to stop the sinful practices, thus tearing down the idols. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing your eye on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the God of the throne of God. I'm stealing my thunder for when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, but that won't be for a couple months anyways, so you'll need a reminder by then. He says, lay aside every encumbrance. Uh, in, in the uh, King James, it says weights, any weight and sin that easily besets us and run the race. Sin hinders our faith and prevents us from being valiant warriors, from being what God has planned for us. But he, I like how he also says every encumbrance, every weight. 
every weight and every sin. And weight is not really defined, which is helpful because I think it, by being broad and vague, it allows us to apply that liberally. Any view or personal opinion, any preference or lifestyle choice that is hindering your walk of faith, I would say could be a weight or an encumbrance. A weight can be all kinds of things from too many rules and legalism to too much liberalism, just really undisciplined, non-committed way of living that can hinder your spiritual life. I have seen both of these extremes. Super strict legalism, adding to the gospel hinders people that's growing spiritually and easy believism, churches that never a critical word is ever spoken, resulting in immature baby Christians who know little of God's word and are easy prey to false teachers. So we need to lay aside the weights and the sins like Gideon, tear down the idols. And this is where we start to peel off the labels. For me, the weight that was encumbering me was, when I was younger, basketball. Not a sin, but it was a weight. Coaching basketball, the first time I did that, was the first time I had any success in anything, and it instantly became a very important part of how I defined myself. I slapped a label on me, coach. That's what I am. I'm a coach. Life moved on and a couple other titles. Got a couple more labels stick on there, you know, uh, youth pastor, uh, husband, father. But that coach label, that was sacred to me. It's where I got my good vibes, my wins. It's where my ego boost came from. Now, coaching's not a bad thing, right? But it was distracting me from the other things that God wanted me to be, like, you know, a loving father and an attentive uh, husband and a serious student of the Word of God. And it became a weight that was preventing me from being who God was calling me to be. So I had to peel that off. I had to shed that. And God called me to be a pastor. I had to let go of my dream, being a professional basketball coach, even though I thought I was much better at coaching. Then I wasn't preaching sermons, and to be honest, in 1997, when I got the role of pastor, I was better at coaching high school kids basketball than I was preaching sermons or leading churches. I was weak at that. But that turns out to be exactly what God had in mind. Because when we are weak, and yet we succeed, it's obvious that God wins the victory. God did that. So watch this in Judges chapter 7. Verses 1 through 8. So then Gideon and all the people who were with him rose up early and encamped beside the well at Herod, so that the camp of the Midians was to the north side of them on the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. Well, that worked well. 22,000 of the people returned, and only 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. Whoever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. 
Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, by 300 who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took their provisions and their trumpets in their hands and set all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. 32,000 soldiers. We remember, and we read chapter 6, verse 5, the Midianites are innumerable, like what? Locusts. So many of them. And when you go up against an innumerable horde of an army, you too want as many soldiers as you can muster. But God says, no. Let's cut that number down. Too many. From 32,000 to 10,000. And God says, ah, still too many. We need to get it down to 300. Just 300 men, weakest army in the world. Yeah, that's what we want. We want unquestionably weak people. Why? Well, he tells you in the text, right? But Paul tells us why too. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh and not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong. He had the base things of this world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are called in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Eliana and I were talking the other night. And she was saying, it's really amazing to me. I'm still not over the fact that people come to me for counseling. And I concurred. I, not that I find it amazing they come to her. I concurred that I find it amazing that people show up here and listen to me preach sermons. Eliana thinks about her young self in the Bronx and all people saw was a kid with a bad attitude. Right, mother-in-law? Just a kid with a bad attitude. And uh, probably she would just be stuck there her whole life on welfare. And uh, myself, one year... You know, I was in high school and I let my name stand for class representative in the student council and uh, nobody voted for me in my class. That was kind of a rude awakening. You see how much your peers thought of you when not one classmate gave me a vote. <laughs> you know, when we talk about, you know, this, this kid's got lots of insecurities, you know, they just need a win. They could boost their confidence. That's, a, that's kind of a, a new way of treating people. Nobody in the 80s thought that way. Nobody cared about boosting your confidence. We were really more into letting you know how much we thought you sucked. That's, you suck. Nobody's voting for you. Get out of here, McNutt. I don't think anyone saw any leadership qualities in me. In college, I did not illustrate any spiritual maturity. Eliana and I still really don't see ourselves all that different than we our younger styles. We still think of ourselves as these young kids. And I know, I know I don't have this great aura of power and intellect and brilliance. And it's best that it stays that way. Because first of all, that is the honest truth. And second of all, it's more importantly what God says he chooses to use. And that's really what we want and need, isn't it? Not man's 
abilities. We want God's power and blessings. 1 Corinthians, God's chosen the weak things to shame the wise. The weak things of this world to shame that is strong. The base things, the despised things, so that no one will boast in themselves but boast in God. And the same thing is said of Gideon is what is said of us. If we were strong, we would claim the glory for ourselves. But when we are weak, which by the way, we all are, don't for a second think you're strong and mighty. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, therefore he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. The greatest, Jesus said, shall be among you shall be a servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I was talking to this fellow recently. His church had asked him if he wanted to join the elder board. And he said, ah, oh, I just don't feel like I'm qualified. I don't know, Pastor Rob, I don't think I'm worthy of that. And to which I replied, well, actually, I think that's a good indication that you may be qualified. Because if you felt confident and entitled, I'd see that as a red flag. But doubting your fitness, well, that's actually a sign of maturity and honesty in who you really are. Isaiah, you remember the prophet, and he was presented to holy God. He falls on his face and he mourns, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. What do I know of holy? How can I serve a mighty God. Well, really, we can't. And yet, the flawed, broken people, hence Kelly's song, all these broken pieces, right? These are the vessels that God chooses to carry the living water in to show his power and strength through our weakness. And, you know, last week, Dan Bethel, missionary Dan, pointed out that Jesus is the light of the world. And yet, miraculously, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And God chooses to use us to shine through. All right, let's finish this story. So, Judges chapter 7, verse number 15, halfway through. Gideon says, Arise, the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hands. This is 300 guys, right? And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put a trumpet in every man's hand with an empty pitcher and a torch inside the pitcher. And he said to them, look at me, do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and all are with me, then you also blow the trumpet on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the 100 men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the midnight middle watch just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands, and the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers and held the torches in their left hand and blew the trumpets in the right hand, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around and cried out and fled. Oh, yeah. Every one of the men stood his place in the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled. So the Midianites, they're in there sleeping at the late, late night, and then there's this lights and blast and shouts, and they all wake up startled, and the Lord has them so confused, they all kill each other. That's awesome. God used Gideon and 300 men to destroy this innumerable army 
turning the scared farmer into a mighty man of valor. And I think this is cool. He even permitted the battle cry to include Gideon's name, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. God has no problem sharing his fame with us. Think about the titles that God gives his people. Peter says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people after God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellences of him who's called you out of darkness <clears throat> into the marvelous light. And he calls you saints. And he calls you sons and daughters of the Most High, kings and priests. We look at ourselves and we read our labels, weak farmer, Last person to ever get picked. What label have you given yourself that you've bought into? I'm just, and there's your label. God knows your weaknesses. That's exactly why he can use you. That's exactly why you can be a valiant warrior. Because in your weaknesses, his strength is made evident. His glory and fame can be declared as opposed to your own. There's strength in suffering, and there's power in weakness. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Blessed are the Gentile. Just blessed are the meek. They inherit the earth. The author of Hebrews, what more shall I say? Time will fail me to talk of Gideon, who by faith conquered kingdoms, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness made strong, became mighty in battle, putting foreign armies to flights. At the beginning of the story, Gideon was focusing on who he was by himself. But we said the Lord is seeing who Gideon is and who will become by faith. My label, poor, dumb, untalented, unpopular. And God said, yeah, I can use that. Anyone here today want to peel off their label and say, go ahead, God, you, you write this. You decide who you want me to be. You define me. What is the Lord going to make you into? I don't know. But here at Faith Bible Church, we are a church of opportunity. We used to say America is a land of opportunity. Faith Bible Church is a church of opportunity. You can rise up to be a mighty person of faith. All you have to do is let God use your weakness and he will transform it into his power and strength. Lord, help us to step out in faith and see the great and mighty things you can make. All these vessels that are broken and, and tore up and all of our weaknesses, Lord, we know that you can make us strong and you can do a great and mighty work for your honor and glory. Not for our honor and glory, but for your honor and glory. And may you glorify yourself in your church. We're praying all this in Jesus' name. Amen.